Hi again, everyone. Glad to have you with us. And welcome back to NTI's Japan Real Estate Property Investment Podcast. I'm your host, Ziv Nakadimam again. And today we've got an exciting episode lined up for you because the start of the year is when all real estate institutions, um, government agencies, property agencies, economists, and research analysts publish their annual summaries of the year just passed. And even more importantly, their analysis of the data and based on that, their predictions of what the next year will bring. So for us as well, who are most of the time stuck nose to the grindstone, dealing with the micro details and the nitty gritty of um, maximizing investment profits and minimizing losses by fine tuning portfolios and so forth, and looking for new deals, this is the one time a year in which we too can take a break and take a more top-down approach, try to see the bigger picture, and hopefully position ourselves accordingly in preparation for things to come. Now, these predictions aren't always accurate to the letter. And in fact, when some of these analysts get ahead of themselves and try to guess how things will pan out three, five, even 10 years down the track, they often end up shooting themselves in the foot because as the last few years have shown us, and for those of us who've been in business 10, 20, 30 years back, this has happened more than once, there are far more factors at play on the international stage than can be accurately estimated to any substantial length of time. For a more reasonable time frame, though, say 12, 24 months ahead, analysis does tend to work quite well. And in the vast majority of cases, many of the predictions actually do come true, um, at least to some degree. So without further ado, let's dive straight into it. Now, the information we're going to cover here comes from a variety of sources, but a few of the main and most important ones are, in no particular order, um, CBRE, one of the biggest and most successful international commercial real estate brokerages, PricewaterhouseCoopers, the international accounting firm who, together with the Urban Land Institute, published one of the best and most detailed annual reports uh, on the Asia-Pacific region at the end of every year. This is a large detailed document called Emerging Trends in Real Estate Asia-Pacific, which is excellent reading material for anyone interested in these markets. Also from Mitsui Fudosan, which is one of Japan's biggest real estate agencies, national coverage, and they provide some of the most comprehensive property market statistics um, on their homepage, which is packed full of graphs, tables, summaries, stuff which would make any analyst's mouth water. And some smaller but insightful local agencies such as Tokyo's Japan Property Central and others um, alongside them. So we're going to briefly review the major trends identified in 2017 summary, try to see what they might mean for 2018 and maybe even a bit beyond that in some cases. So first and foremost, as many of us have noticed down here in the trenches, um, competition has intensified exponentially in the last year especially but not only in Tokyo, Yokohama, and Osaka, Japan's biggest and most internationally renowned uh, metropolitan centers. This has been happening since 2013 or so, shortly after the current Prime Minister uh, Shinzo Abe came into power and kicked off what he labeled a new economic era of healthy inflation, or at least so he hoped at the time. We'll get into that a bit more in a few minutes. This, along with the up-and-coming 2020 Olympics, uh, has reignited interest in the country as a whole and specifically in its property market. Uh, Japan was already the second biggest market in the world transaction-wise and the biggest in the Asia-Pacific region as is. So the last couple of years, which have also seen the global economy improve in most other countries, uh, mean that many places around Asia, as well as in the USA, are no longer distressed buyers' markets as they used to be. 
Great deals are just getting fewer and more far between. Um, yields are compressed as property prices inch higher and higher. And this causes a huge outflow of capital out of those countries and into other places. One of these places, which has always been considered a safe haven for capital um, because of its transparency, low interest rates, safe business environment, is Japan. And we've been feeling this very acutely here. Now, for the very same reason, um, because existing investors who already have assets here are more cautious about selling these days, most of them adopt a buy and hold strategy, mainly because there are far less good deals to be had domestically or abroad. Both of these dynamics create a situation where, at the moment, demand far outstrips supply, um, to the point where competition for viable assets in Japan is now at unprecedented levels. This demand comes from all ends of the investment spectrum, so either traditional property investors of all sizes and shapes um, who are just hungry for good deals, these are now willing to settle for lower and lower yields, higher and higher prices, and even institutional investors who want to allocate more of the resources away from sovereign bond markets, uh, which have mostly dried out and are now providing super low returns. So for these guys as well, even the measly 2 or 3% that they can get from uh, prime Tokyo property assets are a step up yield-wise. The fact that, again, existing property owners are more cautious, prefer not to sell if they can avoid it, has led to commercial sales in Tokyo, for instance, um, dropping by a third in the first half of last year. And that's led more creative investors to various alternative asset classes, which they may not have considered previously. And we'll get more into that in a few minutes as well. Now, what this intense competition has also done is to further push investors to second-tier markets all around the country. So we've already seen this happening um, throughout the last couple of years. First from Tokyo to Osaka, Yokohama, then to Nagoya, Fukuoka, Sapporo, other locations. Last year, this trend has intensified to the point where even as Tokyo commercial transactions have dropped by a third, as we mentioned, the national transaction volume has actually increased by about 14% overall. The frenzy in second-tier markets has more than made up for the transaction volume lost in Tokyo itself. So we're now seeing for the first time Japan's five secondary investment destinations actually account for more overall transactions than Tokyo itself. That's pretty rare. Now we've mentioned um, alternative asset classes. One of the main alternatives which is gaining spectacular popularity these days, uh, to the point where it's no longer really alternative in the broader sense of the word, is shared offices or co-working spaces. These are places where businesses can rent desks as opposed to entire offices or floors. And this gives smaller businesses and startups a leg up expense-wise and also enables companies which may have more flexible staffing requirements, such as outsourcing companies, temp staffing companies, etc., to scale themselves dynamically depending on which projects they've currently got on and the space demands that these projects take. The popularity of these co-working office spaces, along with uh, a bit of an oversupply of new office building uh, stock in Tokyo, is one of the main reasons that rents there have been stagnant and are actually forecast to drop slightly in the next year or two. Of course, um, the fact that wages haven't been uh, really going up uh, in Japan for a while and that consumption tax has gone up and is due to go up again in 2019, these doesn't help as well at least as far as rent increases are concerned. Now, this is a big deal for Tokyo because as far as office capital values are concerned, it's been recently tagged as one of the most expensive markets in the world. They're actually second only, only to Hong Kong um, uh, as of the second quarter of last year. 
So any drop in rents here means further pressure on yields that are already severely compressed as is. So yeah, to the more creative investors among you, shared office spaces, definitely a thing. In fact, in some parts of Asia, and Japan is likely to be headed in that direction as well, co-working properties are the major demand driver for office space transactions uh, generally. So definitely not an alternative asset class anymore, not by a long shot, even if some of the more traditional investors uh, find it hard to think of it that way. Now, another asset class that's been taking a beating this year alongside offices is retail property. Not so much small neighborhood shops and shopping centers, but definitely malls and huge department stores. Uh, these guys have been waking up to reality where e-commerce is taking Asia by storm. Traditional brick and mortar shops, shopping centers have been feeling the pain. CBRE predict that retail property rents, which have been trending down all of last year in the higher end areas, will continue to do so this year. Retail property owners are forced therefore to reduce rents. Some of them are even taking a page of the, out of the old uh, neighborhood shopping district book and turning more towards food and beverage oriented shops as tenants. These guys obviously pay lower rents than high-end goods or luxury retail shops, but the advantage here is that there's very little competition online for food and similar basic commodities. So these tenants are far more reliable on the long term and they're not as likely to go out of business in the next few years due to the e-commerce boom. What other shopping center owners do is they lease out spaces to warehouses, to logistics facilities, instead of uh, normal shops. Basic idea here being, if you can't beat them, join them. These spaces are then rented out by the e-commerce companies. Um, again, logistics warehouses is another alternative asset class that's no longer so alternative. E-commerce takes a lot of storage and delivery capacity. And these types of properties, particularly in or near city centers, are extremely popular these days as online businesses are slowly moving towards same-day service. So prices for these properties has been shooting up. And more importantly, there are simply not enough of them to be had. And this is further complicated by the fact that major cities, Tokyo again in particular, are extremely short on available land parcels, um, especially those of the size required by these types of facilities. Some of them have actually taken to buying chemically contaminated land parcels, then cleaning them up, which is not an easy and quick process by any means, but once that's done, they end up in possession of prime land, which can be used for development. On a more macroeconomic level, as the effect of the first four years of Abenomics, uh, Prime Minister Abe's new economic policies have now seemed to unfortunately fizzle out. The global community as a whole seems to have come to terms with the fact that Japan is actually slowly but surely shaping out to be on a slower growth scale than anticipated, to put it mildly. Um, the economy hasn't slipped back into a deflation where it's been for the two decades prior to 2012, but growth has slowed down significantly from over 4% to just over 1%. Interest rates are still close to zero, and without any major solutions to the aging and diminishing population trend, the general consensus is that Japan probably won't bounce out of this um, slow growth cycle anytime in the near future. As a result, investors are turning away from office uh, commercial properties overall, since these are generally a lot more volatile and sensitive to economic downturns and they turn their eyes instead to residential property, which is a lot more stable. 
The reason for this, by the way, is that businesses can be a lot more flexible. Um, obviously, they can upgrade, downgrade, they can move to different locations, and they can even close as market fundamentals change. While residential properties aren't nearly as volatile simply because people always need a place to live. And they're not nearly as quick to move out of places that they've been renting for a while. Um, humans being creatures of habit and comfort. So the land price graph for 2017, which is almost completely flat, does seem to support this general opinion um, as to the state of the economy. Even though residential condominiums are probably the exception to the norm here, they've actually been rising in price a bit more sharply than uh, land and houses as a rule. And this might continue to be the case until 2020 Olympics again, but anyone's guess after that. So not considered by most to be anything to bank on these uh, price hikes, particularly since um, following the uh, recent price hikes of the last four years, 2012, 2016, Tokyo condo prices are now near their previous pre-bubble peak. That's back in 1991. And this is a huge psychological barrier for buyers um, as they're very wary of going through the same kind of crash again. So yes, residential does seem to be safer than commercial at this point in time for many investors. And while some believe that rents uh, out of Tokyo at least may go up this year, others are more cautious. In any case, residential rents are more likely to remain stable or go up as opposed to commercial rents, which are more likely to continue trending down. Last two trends we're going to cover are JREITs, Japanese Real Estate Investment Trusts. To those who aren't familiar with the term, REITs are essentially funds who invest in real estates, enabling investors to purchase shares or stocks as opposed to being directly involved in property ownership themselves, which gives them more liquidity, uh, access to the property market at much lower entry levels, and without all the hassle involved in managing a property portfolio yourself or hiring somebody to do it for you. Now, Japan's REIT market has taken a slight beating this year. Uh, their yields have compressed, obviously, as a result of the general property market yield compressions um, that they base their profits on. And since these stocks were pretty expensive to begin with, they've lost about 8% of their value um, as of the end of last year, when their returns dropped to about 4.2 on average. Those investors who are still involved in the JREIT scene are moving their fund allocations from mid-level generic REITs to the larger ones who control larger, more expensive assets, or to those REITs who handle specialized areas, alternative asset classes again, logistics, um, senior assisted living, uh, student housing, hospitality properties, uh, and hotels. Now, the last trend, speaking of hotels again, in the lead up to the 2020 Olympics, there's been a large increase in the number of tourists visiting Japan especially mainland Chinese. Hotels are expecting close to 100% occupancy as the games approach. And Airbnb, which has recently been regulated and is now a more feasible option in Japan, along with similar platforms, um, is becoming more and more popular. Now, these particular tourists are more interested in investing their funds in their trip experiences and less so in fancier or luxurious accommodation as opposed to maybe corporate or business guests. So more and more people are now investing in two or three star hotels, in guest houses, or in houses and apartments that can be used for short-term stay purposes. And they prefer this asset class over four and five star hotels and resorts, which were the main focus for um, hospitality property investors up until now. 
That's it for trends. Um, thanks again to the large and impressive pool of property professionals, analysts, economists who provided us with all this info. This sure gives us and you um, a lot to mull over and consider as we plan our investment goals for the year to come. Now, if there are a few major takeaways that we can summarize from this episode for the coming year, probably as follows. First of all, um, buy and hold. Don't sell if you can avoid it. Good deals are few and far between, so you're not likely to have um, too many better places to put your cash into if you do liquidate existing holdings. When you are buying, try to get creative if you can. Again, uh, senior assisted living, student accommodation, um, shared office, co-working spaces, logistics, warehouses, hospitality properties if you can. Um, even develop your own properties if you can afford to. That'll get you a few extra percentage points on your yields. Uh, and if not, at least stick to residential. Um, commercial, retail, office properties all seem to be a bit more risky going forward, at least for the time being. And lastly, as we've mentioned here time and time again, Tokyo is too hot for comfort these days, both price-wise and yield-wise. There is no need to focus on Tokyo or Yokohama. There are plenty of well-established medium to large cities all around the country, places like Fukuoka, Nagoya, Kumamoto, Sapporo, Kobe, and others. You will find higher yields there. And if predictions are anything to go on, uh, definitely a higher chance of rental growth as well compared with Tokyo at least in the next year or two. Okay, that's it from us today. Um, do subscribe to or share this podcast with others if you find uh, the information uh, of use to you. And more importantly, happy investing.